We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also, also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you his poverty might become, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that as your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what we have and what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased by your, by your burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may, be, may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, many moons ago, uh, I worked for a tech company that developed software for various businesses and various business needs. And as uh, the Y2K, uh, remember that? Remember all that turmoil? As Y2K hysteria uh, grew, uh, I was put onto a project that was uh, sinking and turning belly up. The, they were having many problems in production. The clients were not happy. Money was not gonna be paid. And so I was sent in to straighten it out. And I was told to form a team and get to the bottom of what was happening and come up with solutions. So. That's what I did. I got in, I formed a team, I called it a quality control team, and we looked at the hardware and the applications, the software that was being put into production. We stress tested it and we examined it. We began to find many deep issues. 
And as I began to track these things back, I realized it really goes all the way back to the beginning of the process. So I formed a, a quality assurance team that would engage in the design phase and all the succeeding phases, all the way up to production so that hopefully you can catch problems while they're small instead of when they're too big. And as a result, the, we turned the project around, we developed, we de delivered the product, we got paid, and uh, I don't think I got a bonus, but anyway, it was, uh, it was successful. You know, I tell you that story because we opened this series of messages uh, on our common pathway, and we ask you to fill out a survey that was based on our covenant question marks. And our covenant question marks, in a very real sense, act and function like that quality control team and, and even like that quality assurance team ultimately did. These are questions that we can ask ourselves that help us assess uh, the, the quality of our spiritual health and the trajectory of our walk with God. There are five of those questions. Now, if you don't have one of these cards, I want to encourage you to get one. They're on the connect table. They're in the north foyer. But there's five questions that we are calling covenant question marks that do this function. When do I engage with God throughout the day and week? Where can I safely share anything without condemnation? How am I serving and building up others? Who in my life needs to hear and receive the gospel? And what do my calendar and checkbook reveal about my priorities? The question marks are a simple way for us to determine whether or not we are a healthy church that is fulfilling the Great Commission. It's meant to help us provide uh, an analysis of where we're at. Are we, pro are we helping unbelievers, people who do not know Christ, are we helping them in such a way so that they can become a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ? Do we have in place the right ministries, the right training, the right opportunities so that followers of Christ develop into mature disciples who make other disciples? These questions, guys, these are really important questions to our church's leadership, so much so that you're going to see these things over and over again in this form. You may see different questions that are in the same line of thought that serve a similar function, but you're going to see this on a regular basis. In the near term, elders are going to begin to hear from our church members and begin to ask where you see yourself in relationship to these questions. That's why I, I want you to pick up one of these cards if you don't have one. The last thing that we want to do as the shepherds of this church is to simply do church year after year after year and assume that we are helping you grow into a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you're a member, expect these conversations to take place. Uh, it may happen in your covenant group, in your journey group, a discipleship group. Uh, it may happen over a meal. Uh, it may be that it happens before or after church where an elder or a church leader comes and begins to talk to you about these things. But church, understand we do this because it's vitally important. We need to discern as a church our quality. Uh, what, are we, what are those things that we are doing that is right on target. We're hitting the mark. 
And what are those things where we're missing the mark, where we need to improve? We won't know these things. We won't become the church that God wants us to become if we don't jointly, cooperatively enter into this type of a, of a time together. And these questions, these will be the initial framework for those conversations. So I'm asking you to grab it, meditate over them, use them in your prayer time, ask yourself where you're at in relationship to these question marks. Now, you might have noticed that there is commonality between our question marks and the common pathway that we are, uh, have been, uh, been emphasizing the last four weeks. So if you look at our common pathway, central to it is the idea of worship. And one of our question marks is asking, when do I engage with God throughout the day and week? You look up there and you see grow, and there's a question mark that asks, where can I safely share anything that's going on in my life free from the worry of condemnation? And as you go to each of these steps in this pathway, you will find that there's a corresponding question mark. But if you look carefully, you'll also see that there is an anomaly, right? There are four steps or phases in this pathway, but yet we have five question marks. And that's what this morning's message is all about. It is centering on this fifth question mark and explaining it and also explaining why has the church leadership decided to add this extra one in in relationship to the pathway. So what's that question mark? It's that fifth one that says, what do my calendar and checkbook reveal about my priorities? It's stewardship is what this question mark is hitting on. You know, when you ask the church leadership and we went through exercises as part of the visioning process over that year-long period, to, what, to, to paint a picture, what does a, what does a healthy, vibrant disciple of Jesus Christ look like who is involved in our ministry or comes through our ministry? And when we painted that picture, we came up with somebody who, who worships God with the totality of their life. They live their life for God's glory, Sunday through Saturday, at work, at home, play, in church, personally and corporately. Someone who is living authentically in biblical community and is growing in that authentic community to better reflect Jesus Christ to friends and neighbors. Someone who loves God's church and fellow Christians to the point where they use their time and their talents wisely to build it up. Somebody who is convicted and is concerned with the lost of our community, who reaches out, as Ben preached last week on that portion of our pathway, who's reaching out to the lost, as we read and confessed a few moments ago, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, who are bringing the ministry of reconciliation to those that we do life with, who don't know Christ, that we are generous with them, with the gospel, with our time, with our talents, that we're generous with our finances to build up the kingdom of God. Why did we include this fifth question mark? This fifth question mark is included because the leadership of your church believes firmly that mature followers of Christ steward all that God has entrusted to them and generously invest it for the kingdom and for his glory. Stewardship is actually implicit throughout this 
pathway, this ministry pathway. You can't worship God with your life in totality if you're not a good steward. You're going to find it difficult to serve others if you're not a good steward of your time and of your talents. Stewardship is implicit throughout the pathway. We decided we needed to make an explicit fifth question mark that brought this to the surface. Our children, church, our families, our time, our church itself, our talents, our careers, our money, our homes, the planet that God has given us to live in, all of these things, they belong to us only in the sense that God has entrusted these things to us. The actual owner of all of these things that we call ours or mine or my, the actual owner is God. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, verse 1, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Who owns the world and everything? God. Who makes up everything? You do. I do. And everything that we call mine and ours is part of everything. God is the owner and we are his stewards his managers of what he owns. The Apostle Peter is giving this example to the church in 1 Peter chapter 4, and, and he's in that area of service, using your time and your spiritual gifts and your talents to build up the body of Christ. And this is what he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good consumer of all of God's grace. No, as a good steward of God's grace, as a good manager of what God has done. So mature followers of Jesus Christ, they look at this and they realize that God has entrusted all these things to, that we call ours. He's entrusted these things to us and he calls on us. He has a call on our life to manage these things, to invest these things, to steward these things in a way that brings him honor and brings him glory and grows his kingdom. And mature followers of Jesus Christ, they joyfully embrace this call. They obediently live this kind of life. Now this passage, First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that we're looking at this morning, it shows us a group of Christians who are struggling with this call. They were rebelling against this call. And it also shows us, Paul presents to us, a group of Christians who had embraced this call of stewardship and what it was doing in their lives. Now, before we jump into the text, I need to give you some background. What's going on in the Christian world at this time is that the church in Jerusalem is struggling. It's in bad shape. They've gone through persecution. There's been tribulation. There's been war and upheaval. There's also been a horrible famine, so much so that the church itself is uh, in danger of being able to sustain itself. There's deep de deprivation. And so this church in Jerusalem, the mother church of all the other churches, puts out a call to the churches in the Mediterranean world, and they ask for assistance. The Apostle Paul goes around to all of the churches that he has been planted and has been planting, and he asks them to participate in a love offering that will go back to the Jerusalem church to help with this great need. 
The Corinthians, when he first presented them with this need, they joyfully, eagerly jumped on board and said, yes, we're in. You can count on us for at least this much money. So Paul left Corinth with that expectation. He continues his missionary journey, and now he's on his way back to the churches collecting this money, and he has heard from Corinth that things are not all copacetic any longer in Corinth. In fact, what's going on is that false teachers have come in, critics of Paul have moved in, and they have begun to uh, bring turmoil into the Corinthian church, and much of it revolves around Paul. And even some of it revolves around money, because Paul, when he was there, would not take a salary. All of you in favor of the pastor not taking a salary, say amen. Okay, no, don't, don't answer that, right? He, he did not take a salary. He, he worked as a tent maker. And, but this act of not taking a salary opened him up to criticism from these critics and false teachers because the Roman society was one of patronage. And so if you weren't under the, the, the leadership of a patron receiving financial assistance, what does that say about you? You must be a piker, a charlatan, because nobody actually wants to support you. And so the critics began to turn his sacrificial lifestyle against him as a criticism saying, we can't trust Paul with this money. See what's going on here? See, money has always been an issue in the church, and, and this is what's going on here. And so Paul, what Paul does in this passage, is he puts before this, these people and these false teachers and this church that's now waffling in their stewardship, he puts before them a very positive example from this other church, the Macedonian churches, and he challenges the Corinthian church with their good stewardship. And in that challenge, church, there are several gospel applications for us this morning. First, generous stewards are conduits of God's grace. Verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Bereans, that group of churches. These churches were poor. They were poor because of war and because of famine and because of Roman taxation, and they'd had natural disasters. They were a very poor church. Corinth was a very wealthy church. And he's looking at these churches and says, I want you to look at this church. They have been recipients of, of God's grace, the grace of God that's been given among them. He's, he's employing a word phrase, a word play here, okay? Is he saying that the, the Macedonian churches had received God's grace, or is he saying that they are giving God's grace? Which one? Yes, both. He, he's making a point here that generous stewardship, it's always the result of God's grace. You receive God's grace, you're changed by it, therefore you turn and you give it. Generous stewards are conduits of God's grace. And what does that grace look like in the life of a steward. In verse 2, you see that generous, they're generous regardless of their circumstances. In verse 3, you'll see that they are sacrificial to the point where they inconvenience themselves and they do without. In verse 4, you see that they delight and getting involved at the opportunities of the kingdom before him. And so what Paul is bringing to these Corinthians, he's holding up the Macedonian churches and saying, look at this church. And his emphasis here, and this is important for us to, to, to point out, at the beginning of this passage, the emphasis here is not on amounts or on percentages. The, the Macedonian churches were going to give less 
than the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were very wealthy. This was not a matter of an amount. This was a matter of the heart because all stewardship starts in the heart. People whose hearts have been changed by the grace of God who then want to give the grace of God. And so what Paul is emphasizing here at the beginning is not an amount or a percentage. He's simply saying to the Corinthians, he's saying to us, what God seeks are people who are generous, who are eager to get involved at the opportunities of the kingdom that are before you. And you'll even go so far as to sacrifice personally to bring it about. Cheerful generosity is more important, church, than the amount or the percentage that you give. Generous stewards are conduits of God's grace. Secondly, generous stewardship is the fruit of true worship and genuine conversion. Verses 5 to 9 serve kind of as the backbone of this entire argument. Make no mistake, Paul is laying out a masterful argument in the form of the Roman world of rhetoric and debate, and it's masterful. And this passage right here, this portion, it's the backbone of it. And look at, so in verse 4, he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, the Macedonian Christians, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Did you catch that right there? There is a direct link between worship, between offering up our lives as living sacrifices to God in holy worship, as Romans 12 says, and generous stewardship. There's a link here. When we see ourselves belonging to God, our lives are His, and everything that we call mine and ours is actually His, that I am to see as on loan from Him to invest for His glory and for His goodness. When that is what's happening in our hearts, the natural outgrowth of that movement of grace is generosity. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Paul is slick, man. You know what he's doing right now? In this argument, he is now turning the screws on the Corinthian church. He is ratcheting up the pressure on them in the most graceful way. Guys, here, here's what he's saying to them. He says, Corinthians, <clears throat> in spite of their poverty, the Macedonians are generous stewards. They're so much poorer than you. You know this. Yet they are such generous stewards. Why? Because they belong to the Lord. And they have experienced his grace. Now, Corinthians, do you belong to the Lord? I mean, from an external perspective, you appear to. You have faith. You appear to be converted. You have faith. You have knowledge. You have speech. And you certainly have our love as apostles towards you. But the question is, is your love genuine towards Jesus or not? 
Are you going to be generous or not? Well, there's no pressure there, is there? He's ratcheting it up. What he's doing, what Paul is doing with generosity is very similar to what the Apostle John does to the, apostle, to, the, to the disciples in that church in 1 John chapter 3. John goes about it a different way. What he, he does is he says, we, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. You've experienced the love of Christ. You've been converted, haven't you? John's saying. So, therefore, we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. You see, 1 John was written to give the assurance of conversion and salvation to those believers. And so what does John say? John says, if you want to know whether you have actually been converted and belong to Jesus Christ and are his disciple, and one day you have as your eternal home heaven, look at your life. Do you love, not just with your words, but with your lifestyle? The other brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, what he's getting at is that there's a direct corollary between true conversion and loving with word and deed. This type of loving, this type of support from one another, when it comes from our heart, it bears testimony that we are genuinely converted and followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, to paraphrase Tim Keller, says it in a little bit different way, He says, to the extent that our lives are not generous, or it is generous, this is the extent that we do or do not have the assurance of salvation. John uses love for the brothers. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8, uses generosity for the same corollary. For the same purpose. Why would he link generosity to the assurance of salvation as evidence that you've been converted? The answer is in verse 9. <clears throat> For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He who was infinitely rich became pathetically poor in order to pay our sin debt. And if you know Christ, and if you've experienced his forgiveness, he says, you have been made rich through this poverty. Men and women, if if you're here this morning and you're looking for answers and you feel that your life is poor, the answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Turning your life to Christ, embracing Him as your Lord and your Savior, following Him, this brings about a truly rich life. He says, you're rich 
And just such a richness that's absolute. It's eternal. It's infinite. And when you've experienced, when we've experienced the eternal, absolute, infinite richness of Jesus Christ, that changes us. It changes us. From that point on, our significance is no longer in what our peers or our coworkers or our family members think about us. Our significance is in Christ. Therefore, we can turn to these people who are in our lives and we can be generous with the gospel. And we can be ambassadors for Christ who bring the message of reconciliation into their lives. And if they ridicule, if they scoff, if they ignore, if they say hurtful things, in the end, it does not matter because our significance is not found in their words and in their opinion of us. It is found in the richness that we have in Jesus Christ. Our significance is in Christ. Our security is no longer in our bank account, in our 401k, in our material things. Our security, when you've experienced this richness Our security is now in in Jesus Christ. All that stuff could go away, but the security that matters still remains behind, and you can have joy in your life regardless of whether you're a Macedonian going through deprivation or you're a Corinthian whose stock market is going through the roof. doesn't matter because your security is in Christ. And when our security is in Christ and not in money and material things, we can hold on to those things loosely and give them away as God moves to the goodness and for the glory of the kingdom. Generous stewards, they're conduits of God's grace. Generous stewardship is the fruit of true worship and genuine conversion. Thirdly, generous stewards prayerfully plan and intentionally participate. Generous stewards prayerfully plan and intentionally participate. Verse 10 says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring, and in other words, your eagerness to participate may be matched by your completing it, by giving what you said that you were going to give, by giving out of what you have. Verse 12, excuse me. For if the readiness is there, if the eagerness is there, if the heart attitude is there, it is acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You know, I've noticed something in years of pastorate and working with Christians, and I resemble this remark very much for a large portion of my life, that Christians participate in stewardship they, they give of their time. They get involved in a ministry opportunity. They volunteer for a service team. They, they open up the, the checkbook and they write a check. And more often than not, those activities occur out of emotion. Out of emotion. As, as Jonathan told me one time, he goes, we do these things because we get a quiver in our liver. <laughs> right? Uh, it's totally random. It's impulsive. It's, it's an emotional decision based upon the situation at that point in time, and we respond accordingly. Listen, what we see here in this passage is very different than random, unplanned stewardship and giving. 
This church evaluated the need. When they were presented with it, the implication is that they prayed, they considered it soberly, and then they decided, we're going to get involved. And the passage says they began to lay aside money regularly so that when Paul would come back around, they'd be ready. There is intentionality here. Excuse me. There is planning There is prayer. And what Paul is encouraging them to do is to see this through to the end. To not get distracted by the false teachers and by the critics or by the temptations of the world. He's encouraging them, even if you look closely, not to become overwhelmed by the need that is there. But to give reasonably. To give intentionally. To give based off of what God gave us between our ears and to plan it out, and to do it according to ability, with eagerness and cheerfulness. Church, this approach is what God's looking for from us. He's looking for us to eagerly, intentionally, wisely participate in His kingdom. You know, essentially, God is encouraging us to do with His house what all of us do with our own home, right? Uh, we don't get our paychecks you know, at the end of the month or beginning of the month or every week. We don't get those paychecks and then allocate our money for groceries or mortgage based off of emotion, do you? You don't get your paycheck and say, you know, <clears throat> I know that we normally, because I have teenagers, uh, eat you know, $1,200 every month worth of food. Actually, that's probably too low, maybe $1,600. Jonathan is so in for it. He's going to have four boys hitting teenage years all at one time. We're going to have to give him a raise, right? Amen. Right. Amen. Right. Amen. You know, we don't look at it and say, you know what? I know what we normally spend $1,200 for groceries, but you know, this month, I think now we're just going to do 100 You know, I, I know our mortgage is $1,300 a month, but you know, I really don't like those banks charging interest in what they do with my money. I don't appreciate that at all. I think this month... Get up, get away. I'm going to give you $200. I'm giving the bank $200 this month. And electricity, come on. This is just too... Actually, you know what? I really appreciate FPL. They've done such a great job. I know our bill's $400, but this month, I'm going to give them $800. We don't do that, do we? No, of course not. We look at our commitments that are part of our budget, and we allocate a percentage of our finances to meet all of these different needs. We evaluate it and we intentionally budget a percentage and we pay for each need. And church, generous stewards do the same thing, but they include God's kingdom when they budget their calendar and their checkbooks. It's the difference. Generous stewards look at their calendar and their checkbooks and they organize it, and they manage their lives around the most important commitments in their lives, and they recognize that the most important commitment and the first commitment is to God and His kingdom, and all the other things that are important in life come after that. So they first wisely decide and plan, what am I going to do for this need, and with what's left over, I do with the rest of the needs. That is generous stewards who prayerfully plan and intentionally participate. One final application this morning. Good stewardship has healthy checks and balances. Good stewardship has healthy checks and balances. Verses 16 to 21 are intentional. 
You see, what is going on with this accusation against Paul? I mean, we all know, even in this day, right? What are the two things that will sink a church faster than anything else, that will sink a ministry faster than anything else? What are those two things? Sex or money. Scandals around sex and money will destroy a ministry. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. And so in verses 16 to 21, Paul starts bringing in all these other guys. Titus' name and a couple of others are unnamed, but they have a role to play. What's happening here is when the Jerusalem church put out this call, they assigned people to go with Paul to help with the collection, the oversight, and the administration of this money. Paul, who's being criticized by these folks in Corinth over money matters, is able to look at them and say, guys, I do not touch this money. You're questioning how I make a living because I don't take a patronage. You're wondering, am I taking up this offering? I'm really going to skim off a bunch of it to help myself live. Uh, these guys over here, their role is to take care of the money, collect the money, and administrate it and give accountability back to the home church. I don't touch your money. That's what is going on here. There's checks and balances. There's wisdom here, isn't there? And church, if you're going to be a good steward at the personal level, do you know you have to have checks and balances in your life? Listen, there are so many good things that our church is doing, and we need volunteers for this service team, that service team. If you don't have healthy boundaries, checks and balances in your life, you'll overcommit, you'll over-volunteer, and before you know it, you're burned out, you're not doing anything well for the Lord, and ultimately you just throw up your hands and you quit. Why? Because there were no boundaries and checks and balances in your life as a steward. Good stewardship has healthy checks and balances. In your home, good stewardship says, as a check and balance, husbands and wives, if you're married, you're going to sit down with each other and you're going to look at your finances. You're going to look at your checkbook. You're going to look at your calendar. And together, you're going to say, here's where we serve God. Here's what we do with our time. Here's what we're going to do with our finances. I was so shocked many years ago, a dear friend in our church who's, who's now moved out of the area and told me, you know, I, I really don't know what we do giving to church. My, my wife handles all that. I said, what? He goes, yeah. You know, well, come to find out it wasn't good. You know, he just assumed. You see, checks and balances mean you sit down and you have conversations, candid conversations. You say, do we have the margin in our life to be involved in that ministry team? Are we about to make a mistake because we're already involved in this and this and that? See, that's checks and balances. At the church level, this point is very important. A church that practices good stewardship puts procedures in place to protect the reputation of Christ and his church. We're going to take a few offering in a few minutes. You're going to put money in that offering plate. A lot of you, you mail it in or whatever, but let's just pretend that we're in the old days and we didn't have electronic withdrawal and we all put our money in the offering plate. What happens to that money? What happens to it? Well, we have a guy who takes all that money home and he holds it for a while, he counts it, and then when he's ready, he fills out a deposit slip and he takes it to the bank. No, of course not. You know, that has happened in churches before and you can, you can imagine how that story ends. No, not at all. When this money leaves this room, 
We have at least two or three deacons and ushers who take that money to a secure place. Never is that money in the presence of just one person. When they count it, there's a group of them that count it. When they finish counting and they fill out the deposit slips and all that good stuff, they put that money into a locked bag and together, plural, they walk to a safe that we have that has multiple dials and there's only a couple of people who know both combinations, right? And then if you go even further, all the money that comes into this ministry gets reviewed and audited on a regular basis by outside independent agencies who look and see where are we at. If you're wondering, what is, is my role with the money? I don't set my salary and benefits. Pastor Jonathan doesn't set salary and benefits for himself. We have a team of elders. They do this work for our church, and it's a team. Again, it's not just one person. There's a collective accountability and checks and balances. They do these types of things. We have a team that creates the budget of the church that is then submitted to the leadership, the elders of the church, again, plural, who then approve that budget. Many of you give the faith promise missions, and God is doing wonderful. I mean, we had a, we had a thing the other day. Since the summer, we've helped plant nine churches worldwide. Amen? How does that happen? Because there's a team of people who have a budget from the money that you give, they take that and they evaluate everything, the applications, the opportunities, they kick the tires, they have a, an objective criteria so it's not good old boyism and cronyism and nepotism. They have an objective criteria that they go by, they pray over it, they make a decision to support this one for that much and that one for this much all the way around and that recommendation is then passed up the line to another group, plural. In this case, elders who approve it or not. What's the point? There is accountability and checks and balances all throughout our church. When you give to this ministry for the vision and for the kingdom of God, you can do it with confidence, not wondering, is that money going to be used to buy Jerry that Mako he's always talking about? No, not at all. Because of this aspect of good stewardship. Church, let me close out. All of life, right? all of life belongs to God. Manage it well by worshiping Him daily and living for His glory. Growing as a Christian and living authentically with one another in biblical community, that can take up a lot of time. It requires us to manage our time well and to prioritize our calendar for biblical community over the distractions of the world to serve the body of Christ, to reach the lost of our world. It demands that we steward our gifts and our talents and the gospel and our finances. Stewardship, managing what God has entrusted to us, it is implied all throughout our common pathway. It's everywhere. It's a non-negotiable item for Christian maturity. So this last question is included to make it explicit, to not allow us to weasel out of it, to avoid it. So church, what does your calendar and what does your checkbook reveal about your priorities? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for the opportunity to go through this passage of Scripture. Chapter 8 and 9 are just so rich on this topic of stewardship and what you're looking for in our hearts as we steward the things that you've given to us. Lord, where, where we fail, I ask that you would forgive us, that you would give us the grace that we need to begin to obey. Lord, for the one maybe who is enslaved to the things of this world, who has not answered this call, would you give them the grace they need to grow, to mature, to see how vitally important it is to hear one day, well done, you good and faithful steward of all that I've given you. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.